you're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Grace. And today we're going to be talking about the story of Marguerite Kyoto. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's how you say her last name. I'm really hoping I'm not butchering it. Um, but she lived in the Phoenixville area in the 50s. And also her the Slavic version of her name is Kotik that I found. K-O-T-Y-K. So hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly too. But I believe that's what's on her headstone. In the winter of 1954, Marguerite Kyoto was working as a secretary for B.F. Goodrich Tire Company. On the evening of March 2nd, which was a Tuesday, Marguerite attended two local dances, one at the Valley Forge Army Hospital and one at the Polish American Citizens Club, which was a pre-lentern dance. So for those that don't know what that is, it's also called Shrovetide, or it's the Christian season of preparation before Lent. So the latter, the pre-lentern dance, was on the north side of Phoenixville, about three blocks from her home. According to my research, the Polish club had just opened a couple of months before this dance um, and Marguerite's death. So it was probably pretty exciting and possibly the first time Marguerite had ever been there. So fun little fact, um, our rugby team every year has a Halloween party at that Polish club. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, it's still there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. So according to sources, Marguerite walked part of the way home with a girlfriend from work, but they parted ways about two blocks from Marguerite's home, which was on the lower part of Buchanan Street in Phoenixville. And this is always how it happens, people. So just walk the whole way with your friends, buddy system. <laughs> Marguerite headed down an alley along Washington Avenue and was never seen again. Around this time, two witnesses reported hearing screaming coming from the alley and a large man carrying what appeared to be a woman's body. Um, One source says she was kicking and screaming and another didn't mention this. But either way, the incident went unreported as the witnesses assumed it was just kids having fun. (sighs) So hindsight is always 20-20. And I know I say this all the time. But looking back on it, I really hate when stories have this element of, oh, I thought they were just joking around in them. Yeah. It's like famous last words. I feel like if you think that something, you should just call it in. Mm -hmm. Like, just call it in. And then be 100% sure. If it's a joke, it's a joke. If it's not, kind of like with the Cindy song thing. Like, if someone saw something that night, it was Halloween night, so... They just assumed that it was funny gate. Yeah. If you see something, say something. <laughs> One witness said he observed the man putting the woman into a car. Later, investigators would find an earring that was identified as Marguerite's in the same alley. And I recently found another article from two days after she went missing that said the witnesses basically saw and heard her get assaulted. So what the hell's with that? And then it's just seems to disappear in future articles. So trying to put myself in this situation and kind of trying to put myself in both sides of the situation. I know that often my husband will tickle me in public and I despise being tickled. 
So sometimes I will just flip out and get super irritated with him if he won't knock it off. So I have to wonder, especially the fact that this was the mid 50s, if there was a thought that it was a husband or significant other that was maybe assaulting her, not that that makes it okay, but it was the 50s. And I hate saying that, but I wonder if someone just kind of turned the other cheek thinking they really didn't want to get involved in a lover's quarrel. Um, I also think about like, if I heard something like that, what would I do? And now with it being 2021, exactly like you guys said earlier, you know, if you see something, say something, I would absolutely call the police. But that comes from lessons we've learned over the last 60 years. And the fact that, you know, I carry an iPhone in my pocket all the time. And that wasn't a thing in the 50s. So definitely super sketchy, though, that these claims just kind of disappear in the later articles. Well, the only thing I can think of of why it disappearing is sometimes you get people that want to insert themselves into an investigation or just want to be a part of something. So maybe it was mentioned and they found out that what they said was not true. And that's why they didn't bring it up in future articles. That's just my thought. Yeah. That's a fair assumption for sure. Since it was, like I said, um, reported like two days after she went Mm -hmm. missing. So it's very plausible. What if it was a woman that reported it? Because I feel like if it was a woman in the 50s, that maybe it wouldn't have been taken as seriously. Could be. And I'm thinking, too, I mean, in the 50s, kind of what Sarah said, they didn't want to get involved in a lover's quarrel. They could have just been like, well... It's none of my business mm-hmm. what a husband is doing with his wife. So I totally, I don't understand that thinking, but I understand that's how it was then. So so as soon as Marguerite was reported missing, the police believed that she had been kidnapped. In an article from March 6th, right before her body was discovered, police chief Fred K. McInnes is quoted as saying, we are sure this is a kidnapping and we're afraid it's murder as well. Whoa, that's really fast. I feel like they at least look a little bit longer. I mean, it wasn't like they waited forever to say, oh, we think she was murdered. I mean, that's pretty quick. Were there signs of like, blood or weapons or anything like that that would have led them to that that quickly i mean really just that initial report of assault and you know that guy carrying the girl on his shoulder um it it is surprising that they labeled it so quickly and there's another article printed while she was still missing that's titled mystery car spurs hunt for abducted secretary And I mean, maybe we just haven't covered this many cases from this far back in time, but in a lot of cases we've covered and just discussed, especially with young people, they're often considered runaways first. Um, So it's just, it's an interesting situation. By Thursday, March 4th, Marguerite's second earring was found about 25 feet from the alley along Washington Avenue. Search parties developed immediately, and police got to work interviewing those who had been in contact with Marguerite that night. Tips started coming in, so leads were investigated quickly as well. A tip supplied by Albert Kovach of Charlestown, PA, led police to search for the owners of a green sedan. 
Kovach was employed by Goodrich Tire Company in Oaks, the same company that Marguerite worked for. According to an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Kovach quit working at midnight Tuesday, stopped in Phoenixville for gasoline, and was driving home on Route 29 when he noticed a green sedan parked at the intersection of Buckwalter Road. Kovach estimated the time as 2.50 a.m. Wednesday, which was about 20 minutes after the police believed Miss Kyoto was attacked as she walked toward her home. So I'm either assuming that the time is a typo or it's misinformation, since according to other timelines, Marguerite would have been attacked around 12.30 a.m. And this reports as um, 2.50 a.m. So I'm I'm just not sure about that discrepancy. You mean like maybe like it should have been 1250? Correct. Yeah. Okay. That would make much more sense. Kovach said two men standing beside the parked sedan turned their backs as his headlights brought them into view. Despite bitter weather, he said one wore no top coat. The other man was attired in a top coat and had what appeared to be a blanket slung over his arm. Kovach said he was unaware Miss Kyoto was missing until he arrived at work at 4 p.m. Thursday. So that's a whole day and a half later uh, to learn that she was believed murdered. Uh, so he told the story to the police the next day. This is wild. And I'm going to agree with you and Amanda and say, you know, mm. I would think that's probably just a typo. It's meant to be 1250 and not 2.50. Um, because, yeah, he left work at midnight, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't take three hours to pump fuel. Um, but maybe it alludes to something worse, and it really was near 3 a.m. when he saw them. Um, I also have to think, if I'm leaving work at midnight, getting fuel, and then driving at night. Now, I also have horrible night vision, so that factors into my own perception of things. But I can't imagine that I would remember something in that much detail. Like to see someone wearing a top coat or not wearing a top coat or what they're uh, have hanging on their arm. Like I drive by cars with people in and near them all the time, but I don't remember details like this. Maybe I'm just being way too skeptical and it just stood out to him. But I don't know. That's just my thought. So like I was at Hershey Park today and I couldn't tell you what I parked next to. <laughs> no idea. So like, that's a lot of detail for the middle of the night. And even though that like, you know, he works, it sounds like he works night shift. So he's used to being up at those hours. So it wouldn't be like groggy in the middle of the night, ran out of the house. I, that's just a lot of detail to remember about something. Yeah. A lot of detail is always kind of sketchy. But even, I mean, I'm used to working day shift when I am in the office you know, I'm in the office seven to three. I usually leave somewhere between three and five and I'm usually awake into the night, but I couldn't tell you who I drive by at 4.30 PM when I'm driving through Harrisburg to get home. So, I mean, even with that being his regular schedule, it still definitely seems super detailed. I feel like something had to stick out. Like maybe the fact that this person was carrying a blanket or didn't have would they say like a, mm -hmm. an overcoat or top coat or whatever the terminology yeah. is? Maybe that's what stuck out to him. And that kind of like said, oh, like this is interesting. And that's why he paid more attention to it. Also, they probably didn't have the amount of cars cool. and people as there are in the 50s. 
That's true. And I think the top coat thing stuck out because apparently it was very, very cold, like record breaking temperatures. So I guess you would probably notice that like, what's that idiot doing out there in basketball shorts and a t-shirt? Well, in one, <laughs> that's every day. one person had a blanket with them and the other person didn't even have a coat on. So I guess that would stand out too. Yeah. Like share your blanket, man. <laughs> Now, if it was a rolled-up rug, I might be a little bit more interested. <laughs> For sure. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. So Kovach mentioned bitter weather in his statement and the area had been experiencing sub-freezing temperatures, which is why when Marguerite was finally found in an abandoned cesspool next to an old schoolhouse, her body was covered in two inches of ice. She was fully clothed and her handbag and watch were also recovered at the site. Her watch had stopped at 125. Do we think the watch just kind of happened to stop at that moment? Or could that be a signifier of when she was submerged in the water and that the water is what caused the watch to stop? Have there been any kind of thoughts on that? I haven't heard anything, but I have heard of times when people die and their watch stops at the time that they passed. But I have a feeling it was more that when she entered the water, it broke. So Coroner Cooper T. Bishop of Chester County said that he would have to wait to perform an autopsy until the body had thawed. At the time, it was not possible to figure out a cause of death, and there was no apparent evidence that Marguerite had been criminally assaulted, except for the fact that she was thrown in a cesspool, which, by the way, is, like, the most demeaning place you could leave someone. Like, that's not really mentioned in any of the research I did. Like, no one ever says it, but, like, it's a pit of shit. Like, that's, it's terrible. So the schoolhouse where she was found was located at Diamond Rock Road and Old Valley Forge Road at Williams Corner. This was about two miles from her home. The people of Phoenixville were terrified and the streets essentially closed down. Chief McInnes was convinced that the murder had to be local to the area as it would be impossible to just stumble upon the place where her body was found. I feel like we say that a lot, but... Whatever initially happened, whether it was an abduction or someone that she knew or whatever, it had to be within that two block radius of her house. And then it's only two miles away. So, I mean, I think of even, you know, I grew up in Perry County and there's a lot of back roads there, but within a two mile radius of town, pretty much anybody can figure out you know, where lakes and ponds and I don't know, it, it seems like it wouldn't be that hard to find. It's not in the middle of nowhere. It's two miles outside of town. 
Um, just from growing up in Phoenixville, I mean, it was like booming back then. There was, and then there was a huge recession, and then it just started booming again. There were a lot of people there. Um, for multiple things, they had like factories there and everything. So there were a lot of people living there. It wasn't like farmlands or anything. Gotcha. Did they say who found her? Did I miss that part? Um, no, I don't think I mentioned that yet. But it was a few men that were part of like the larger search party that was looking for her. Okay. Cause you said like, you thought that it would somebody like, it would be a hard area to find her. So I was just wondering if it was a search party who was like, would be looking purposely in that area or if like someone stumbled upon her in this thing. Yeah. It was a few men that left the main search party, I guess when they like split up to search different areas and they were searching, um, that, the Bergness? schoolyard and everything. Hopefully. Dr. Manuel Opathologist performed the autopsy. It revealed that she had not been sexually assaulted. And I just, just to note, the autopsy was performed so quickly, especially considering that they had to let her thaw. And I realize I didn't write how quickly they did it, but I do remember it being just a few days later, which is, I don't know, crazy to me. Sergeant William Kelly said that it appeared she was knocked out, taken to the schoolhouse, and then stabbed three times in the chest. She was then dumped into the cesspool underneath. Unfortunately, she also had water in her lungs, so even if bleeding out was her official cause of death, she wasn't dead when she went in the water. Um, and didn't the initial external observation lead them to believe she hadn't been criminally assaulted because wouldn't you see stab wounds and something else I find really interesting that wasn't released to the public for a very long time was that she was apparently wearing quote a strange combination of undergarments and I have no idea what that means like five pairs of underwear I I don't get it no idea a thong <laughs> yeah i couldn't yeah in the 50s scandalous would have been <laughs> but i couldn't you said she was dressed right Mm-hmm. yeah so that might be why they didn't notice the stab wounds until they got her back for autopsy so do you think she was like undressed when she was stabbed or it's even if she was stabbed through her clothes it would still be hard to tell i mean just say it <laughs> i mean if they had to like Shift her out of the ice. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, not to be an ass, but, like, if you have to get her out of the ice and, like, maybe she wasn't completely thawed or they thawed around it to try and preserve, like, any type of evidence. So it could be that her clothes were still frozen to her and you just didn't see the hole. That's fair. Yeah, because they did say she was frozen solid, so. Remind me how many days after she went missing she was found. It was just a couple of days. So being in a cesspool, which is gross and gross conditions, when you pull the body out of there, there's going to not only is she frozen, but there's going to be other things on her clothing. So she probably just looked insanely disheveled regardless. It was reported that skin was found underneath Marguerite's fingernails. This is great evidence. I'm wondering if they preserved any of it. 
And a few days later, Phoenixville Police Chief Fred K. McInnes revealed that a hair was found in the clasp of Marguerite's handbag, and it was determined to be different than her own. At that time in history, it appears as if they could only find out if the hair belonged to a man or a woman. Do we know if else. it belonged to a man or a woman? I believe they reported that it belonged to a man. Okay. But I'm... Not too sure. There wasn't much follow-up on this because, I mean, I guess there wasn't much they could do with it besides also say that it was not hers. Right. Do we know, like, how... We don't know anything about it, like, how long it was or... Because I'm thinking, like, hair found... It, I'm thinking, like, like my hair, like, long hair. Yeah. It... I didn't find any information on it. And it seemed like just one hair, so honestly, it's probably long gone, unfortunately. So Chief McGinnis also reported that the murder weapon was a double-edged stiletto knife, and he asked anyone in the Phoenixville area that owned a knife like that to see if theirs had been stolen. I kind of love this police tactic of saying, you know, if you happen to own this, let us know and let us know if it's missing because it... If somebody committed the crime and knows they have that, they can say, oh, no, here's mine. It wasn't stolen, so it wasn't me. It wasn't my knife that did this and almost makes them feel like they're innocent. But the police can actually say, all right, so you own the murder weapon. So we're going to look into you more now that you told us you have it. I don't know. I kind of like that. You'd be shocked because there was, um, again, me referencing cold justice because I'm obsessed, <laughs> but um, the guy reported his gun missing and even provided like shot bullets and everything so that they can match ballistics and his son was charged. Like he had zero fucks given. He just threw his son under the bus. So if anything, if theirs is missing, maybe it gives them an idea of somebody else in the family or... Right. Yeah, and I should have looked it up because I don't know much about knives, but I'm not sure exactly what the knife looks like or if it was common. I actually looked it up because I was like, oh, what's a stiletto knife? Because I'm thinking of, like, red bottom heels, which is definitely not... A Louboutin but... uh, knife. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's kind of like a switchblade. Okay. I also looked up Phoenixville because um, you said about the demographics on it. And in the 50s, it had 13,000. The population was about 13,000. And it was estimated in 2019 that it was a 17,000. So it wasn't a huge difference. Hmm. What year did you say the recent, more recent one was? 2017? 19. Not 2019. I was going to say because, like I said, there was like a huge decline in Phoenixville when all of the manufacturing like moved. And there was just tons of storefronts that were, that couldn't make it, couldn't do anything. And it was just all like kind of broken down and out of place where you wanted to live. And in the past, like four or five years, they've really, you know, added stuff up and it's like the place to be. I think they're, I think it's one of the top five places in PA that has the most like breweries yeah. on their main street. It's ridiculous. It is crazy. I'd be interested what 2020 says, but there's something really corny to be said about Phoenixville rising from the ashes, but I'm just going to leave it right there. <laughs> <laughs>
So in an article from much later, 1976, police chief at that time, Joseph Kane, said he and an outside source believed the weapon was actually a surgeon's awl, a sharp double-edged medical tool. And then later reports said that the murder weapon was an ice pick. So I'm not sure if everyone agrees on that or where they officially landed, but the last one I saw said ice pick. Basically, it was sharp on two edges is what they're saying. Yep. Yes. So over the years, evidence has gone missing, and there still seem to be way more questions than answers. The outhouse where Marguerite was found was torn down the day after her body was found, and no one knows who ordered that. There was a list of 25 suspects that vanished from Phoenixville police records before the state police could see it. Apparently, one of the suspects on the list was a prominent Phoenixville citizen, and I know... As we look through some of the theories, it points to prominent citizens as well. So I don't, it just kind of alludes to maybe some corruption in the local police since it said, you know, that list went missing before state police could get their hands on it. Um, A coroner's inquest was pending, but never completed and then eventually deemed unnecessary. So basically they were like, yeah, we're going to do this inquest It's in process, and then all of a sudden, never mind. We don't need it. Two private detectives who were investigating the case in 1956 were asked to leave town by the police. So, like I said, so many questions. How much evidence is left? Are there still preserved samples of the skin from under her fingernails? What happened to the hair? Did they ever find any sort of murder weapon? And who hired the private detectives and why did the family feel like the police weren't doing their job? Good Lord, this has more red flags than my last relationship did. I feel like that should be followed by some sort of sound effect. <laughs> womp, womp. <laughs> true though (laughs) i think we can all say that every past relationship yeah so there were multiple articles at the time where the lack of justice for murder victims was lamented and american law enforcement and lawmakers were criticized and i mean people were really pissed can't blame them there and this was a really widely publicized case um it appeared in papers i mean all over the u.s So Marguerite is interred at St. Michael's Greek Catholic Cemetery in Montclair in Montgomery County. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by SNR Midnight Designs, a family-owned small business known for their custom and personalized crafts. I personally have ordered from SNR and not only got great quality sweatshirts for our family, but also had a great experience working with Sam and Robbie. In addition to clothing, SNR will also customize cups and signs, and they aim to make crafts that make smiles. Check out SNR Midnight Designs on Facebook and Etsy today. That's S ampersand R Midnight Designs on Facebook and SR Midnight Designs with no ampersand or spaces on Etsy. Now we're going to go into some suspects and theories. And I mean, there's just a lot. This is a case study on letting town gossip run wild because there are just so many stories that I mean I don't want to point fingers at police it's probably none are around anymore anyway to hear me say it but I mean they kind of did let a lot of these rumors run wild and you know I don't think they were communicating with the public very much 
So just this is just a sample of suspects and theories. There was a 19-year-old who was questioned days after Marguerite's body was found. His name was not released, but apparently he had access to a green sedan, like the one that um, Kovach, her co-worker, had mentioned. The next one is a 20-year-old man named Romeo Dominic from Philadelphia, and he had escaped from the Norristown Mental Hospital two weeks prior to the murder. It was said that he had homicidal tendencies and was accused of stabbing his wife that prior July while he was on Father's Day leave from the hospital. However, police said in 1954 they had no reason to believe that Dominic was connected to Marguerite's murder. They, um, I'm sorry. Father's Day leave, you're in a mental hospital and you get Father's Day leave? Apparently. It doesn't, um, so I, there's another case that I just finished and he was in Norristown Mental Hospital and he, when he got out, he told people that he was the janitor there. <laughs> so interesting. So he didn't admit that he was a patient. He said that he worked there. Yeah. Okay. And he's accused of like killing four people. Cute. Jesus. Yeah, it's a good one. Can't wait to hear about that one. <laughs> so Paul V. Coates of Confidential File Series interviewed a man who had been arrested for the crime in October 1957 and was currently living in California. He had been living in Newark, New Jersey at the time of the murder. He was in the Army, and his name was found in a little book in Marguerite's purse along with 16 or 17 other names of soldiers, he called her a, quote, patriotic girl. Wink, wink. So wait, I am totally missing something. Why is this a wink, wink? She just really liked her soldiers. Oh. A man in uniform. Okay, now I get it. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So this guy had dated Marguerite about six months before her murder when he was stationed at the Valley Forge Army Hospital. He said that he saw his name had been found in the book, um, and he called the sheriff and told him who he was, and then the officers were sent to question him. He said the officers were nice, and he thought that would be the end of it, but he said after a couple weeks, the officers came back and were much more aggressive and accusatory with their questioning. They threatened to take him to PA, so he ran off to California. Nothing screams, I'm innocent, like running three time zones away. Yeah, so weird. After a while, he called the police in Phoenixville again, but lost his nerve and hung up the phone before he told them where he was calling from, uh, specifically because he had already mentioned he was in Los Angeles. Shortly after that, two PA cops and a local LA cop showed up at his door to take him into custody. Not really sure how they found out where he was. He alleges he was kept in a cell and verbally abused. After a long ordeal, he was released. Apparently, when he returned home, he had been robbed blind, and the woman that had been watching his dog refused to give it back to him. He said that he considered breaking into her yard and stealing the dog back, but he was terrified to get into any more trouble. The man was not named in the article. I'm wondering if it was the 19-year-old that was questioned not long after the murder. And reading this again out loud, it just... Sounds even more bonkers to me than the first time. I mean, this is wild. Yeah, I mean, I don't love that he ran away to LA, but 
Also, like, if they're harassing him because he slept with a girl and she slept with how many other soldiers? Like, I guess, does he wear a coat outside when it's cold? (laughs) Nope. Basketball shorts. Because, like, if you're running, if he's not from L.A., right? I don't think so. It just said he was in New Jersey at the time of the murder. Because, like, if you're from L.A. and then you're here, you would definitely, he probably had the blanket. Right. Yeah. Probably. So I found another tiny article from July 1957 that said police received two calls from L.A. from someone claiming to have killed Marguerite. Apparently the call had come from a college. I'm not sure why there's two whole theories based in L.A. That's clear across the country. This is crazy. Two county police reps went to L.A. and brought back a list of 1,100 to 1,200 possible names. Chester County District Attorney John E. Stively Jr. said that the list proved very helpful and we have turned up something which we feel is at least mildly helpful. No other details were given. Okay. So it feels kind of weird. And Grace, like you mentioned, it's really strange to have these kind of two different connections coming from L.A. I wonder if this guy that we talked about in the last theory, this unnamed dude man, um, maybe told people why he was in California. Like he was out at a bar and, you know, hey, what brings you to California? I don't know what military dudes talk about in bars in the 50s, but you know, he mentioned something about, well, you know, Pennsylvania police think that I'm involved with this thing and I'm not and blah, blah, blah. And then other two people call in and they're like, hey, I did this, JK, because they think it's funny. That's the only connection I can see is these two calls both come from the area that this guy ran off to. So I wonder if he filled in details and then they made calls. Your friends would have to be serious dicks to be like, dude, you know, it would be hilarious. Yeah. Just saying. So in a newspaper article from 1976, police chief Joseph Kane said they had narrowed down the suspect to two people who are both well-known local professionals. They were not named, but one had apparently committed suicide in Puerto Rico and another disappeared to Florida. Apparently, Marguerite's sister firmly believed that the one that committed suicide was the murderer. Kane disagrees, as he doesn't think this person would have had access to the type of weapon used to murder Marguerite. Um, This particular man was rumored to be a police officer. Okay, but if they think it was possibly an ice pick, isn't it pretty easy to get your hands on an ice pick? I have no idea. You would think. And also, like, if he's a cop, that's, like... He's authority. You can just, can't you just go buy whatever you want? Or this is, this goes back to, I think, disagreements about the murder, what the murder weapon actually was. So it could have to do with that. Um, But he thinks that the other one would have had access to the surgeons all. So I'm guessing they had to be a medical, the other one had to be a medical professional. So unfortunately, due to time and financial restraints, the resources just weren't there to really dive into these suspects, which is a shame since they had it narrowed down to two, apparently. The police did actually have a composite sketch of the suspect that they called Ray. 
He was five foot 11, weighed about 150 pounds, had light brown hair, a fair complexion, and would have been about 21 years old. But I think back to the witnesses saying that the man they saw carrying a woman was larger, and this description is not very large at all. Um, but I can't find any update about these suspects after this. So I guess since they didn't have the resources, they just didn't follow up on it at all. Are they taking this description off of the guy that said about the green sedan? Maybe. But he said he saw two guys. So. Yeah. I'm interested, like, if one of these two people, like, local professionals match this description and, like, why would you name him Ray? I don't know. Why not? It's just weird to, like, name a suspect. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, bo- that bothers me. I'm really not sure what they based it off of. Just based off of my research and what those witnesses said about the guy carrying the girl. But um, in August 1979, a woman in Tampa called the Tampa FBI office anonymously, claiming to have information about the whereabouts of some evidence and even named a specific suspect. The woman wouldn't leave her name or any way of contacting her, but said if an arrest was made, she would testify. Do we know what she told them? Uh, no, I didn't see any specifics about it. They didn't, they definitely didn't name the suspect that she listed. So I don't think anything really ever came of that. But I mean, in any of these theories, the investigators still didn't have a motive. So that's huge. They just had nothing to go off of there. In 1990, an article was published about Dan Botero, a freelance writer, and Joe Winnick, a former police detective. They had teamed up to find out more about Marguerite's case. They were both children in the area when Marguerite was murdered and can clearly remember the uneasiness it brought to the town. They had gathered so much information that they claimed they had actually figured out who did it and why. They also said that digging up information was relatively easy and wondered whether the police had been hindered by someone who didn't want the murderer to be found. As investigators have agreed in the past, they believe that the murderer was a prominent citizen of Phoenixville. The pair also said that they had eliminated the two suspects the police had previously mentioned. Gossip and news accounts said they were a policeman and doctor, probably the ones that we had mentioned above from the um, article in the 70s. Rumors were allowed to run rampant through the town, which cast suspicion on people that possibly didn't deserve it and created chaos for the investigation. Now, as you say that, I am, I'm part of a couple local uh, Phoenixville groups, uh, like a plant group, like mom's group and stuff like that. And every so often, like before you even decided to take this case, like I know you had mentioned, I think you even asked me because we both, you know, go to Phoenixville and have been there and stuff. Um, I see so many posts of people asking and just the so many comments on the post of all these rumors and theories constantly. It's like every couple of months, but you get like, there's a huge listing of all our comments and it's crazy to see. And I, sometimes I feel it's always the same people, but there are a lot of hard feelings about this case still in Phoenixville. Yeah, and I saw something on Reddit that someone was like, I'm pretty sure my relative did this. And so yeah. I think I've seen that like multiple places. 
I mean, yeah, it's wild. There's, And I don't know if we just see it so much because, like, I get, we're definitely closer to Phoenixville than you guys. But, man, is it talked about all the time from all the cases. It's just constantly. And I feel like sometimes it's all the newer people coming and, like, asking about it or heard about it in passing. And then they, like, post on these socials and everyone just is like, okay, let's start this again. Let's go through all these. And it's just like man yeah everyone comments like i know what happened this is what yep. happened but they're and they're all, so sure of themselves <laughs> they're all different though it's, yeah yeah it's really crazy so these two guys believe that she knew her killer and that she went with him willingly at first and that she was not knocked out in the alley um like it was previously stated Apparently, the woman that walked part of the way home with Marguerite remembers her saying, if you don't see me tomorrow at work, look for me in Burns Alley. Like, what the hell? They believe she had agreed to meet someone that night, a well-respected and well-known man in the community, and ultimately the murder was committed to keep her quiet. These guys did so much research, but this is all I can find about it, this one article. And they were planning to have the case solved in a few weeks and write a book about it, but it's clearly still unsolved, and I don't even know if the book was ever written. I can't find any sign of it online, if it was. I have so many thoughts that I don't even know where to begin. I guess my big one is this. The friend that she walked with would still likely have been in the same area, right? Like, if they walked down the street and just split ways... They would be getting further apart, but not by miles or anything. I wonder how it all unfolded that other people were outside and heard the commotion, but not this friend. Not at all saying the friend should have or could have done anything. More so curious how the friend didn't hear anything since others reported that they couldn't hear her. I mean, that's a good point because, I mean, witnesses who are inside their home said that they could hear a woman screaming, but... I don't know. Maybe it was far enough away from that time, like, say, a 10-minute difference where the friend could have gotten significantly further away. That's all I can really think of. Or home already. Yeah, true. But, like, if she kept a book with all of these military guys in it, wouldn't she have something that might say who she was meeting? Like, it seemed like she had a little black book of... Or deeds. But, I mean, if they were just names, maybe not necessarily dates or anything like that, like... Maybe it was Ray. Maybe. Maybe that's where Ray came from. Do we know if they looked into, like, all of those 16 or 17 names or however many there were? I would have to assume so, just because, I mean, it was never said explicitly, but apparently they were just super thorough with interviewing people um it, straight from the beginning so i all i can say is probably fair so just a couple things to note to end on one of the men that found her body was arrested a year later on a morals charge now it was the 50s so honestly i don't know how serious of a charge that was like he could have been gay who knows i have no idea but it's just mentioned in some of the articles. And this is just weird for me that all of these articles refer to her as a pretty secretary. Like almost every single one of the articles, at least from the 50s to 70s. And it just, it creeps me out. I don't, 
that's all they describe her as. Yeah, welcome to the 50s. That's how women were seen. So on newspapers.com, there are 476 matches for Marguerite's name for the 50s because, like I said, it was such a widespread case. It was covered all over the place. Um, But then in the 60s, there are 19 matches, and there are four each for the 90s and um, 2000s. So, I mean, of course, the site doesn't have all newspapers and articles that exist, but it gives you an idea of how wildly popular her story was until the general public moved on. And there was actually um, an article printed in the 50s about like how long will it take for us to forget marguerite like this is super popular now but eventually everyone's going to move on and i mean to their credit there were investigators that made it their mission to solve this crime but no tips ever led them anywhere so if you do have a tip, even though this case is not currently being investigated, at least to my knowledge, if you have any information about this crime, the phone number listed for Phoenixville Police Department is 610-935-2440. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins. Production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.